my family started years ago when my kids were very young. We started a tradition of making Christmas cookies together, and so we literally have pictures of watching them grow up year to year from the mess that we made in the kitchen. And I don't know about you, but here's what we discovered in our family. They would break cookies on purpose <laughs> because the broken cookies you could you could eat. Sounds like the same thing happens in your family as well. The perfect cookies, you'd get your hand slapped if you went to touch those. And so we would, I discovered as the kids got a little bit older, as, as we got to the place where they could take the cookies out of the oven, that they literally, when they didn't think we were looking, would break pieces of a star off or break the crisp, and they'd go, oh, 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 this one's broken, and we would never quite make it to the frosting. Let me show you what happens in our house when you make a perfect cookie. It gets put into a plastic bag. This one here, I believe, was made by Teresa Goldberg over a year ago for an event. It, it is perfect, and so it was put into a plastic bag and stuck in our freezer, <laughs> of which every time I open the freezer, I see this cookie. So I took it out today to bring it to church because perfection gets looked at. Perfection gets observed. And cookies, I discovered, are a piece of art if they are done well. And so the reason that I love that is, is because perfection always seems to be something that should only be observed and never, ever be messed with. So the question that we're going to wrestle with today is why does a perfect God needs something as messy as Christmas? Why does a perfect God need something as messy as Christmas? Lord, as we dive in today to your word, I pray that you would lead us and guide us. Father, at this season, when our attention is focused in so many ways, may we see you for who you are, the love that you've given to us, and may we have it explained to us well through your word of why you needed Christmas. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So that's the Christmas message this morning. Why? Why did God need to send somebody? Why did God have to send His Son? Why did God cram all of His deity and all of His glory into a body? Why God in a body? Why did He not just send us another message? Couldn't He have found a new way just to send the message? Why not? Just send us a different messenger that looked different from the other messengers. Why does a perfect God need Christmas? And I want to warn you today that as we get into the answer of this, it's going to be a little complicated and it's going to become very, very personal. And so for those of you that may be following along on, online or you're have our online bulletin. The first point I want to make today is this. Why did God make Christmas so personal? In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the Scripture says this, But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So now the question for us as we look at this is not why God in a body. The question is why God in a baby body. We just heard Pablo talk about how, how helpless this little girl is in his hand that he, he's afraid he could break her, and he probably could. So why God, in this message of Christmas, putting all of this into a baby body? Why show up in, 
in human form at all. Why show up like the rest of us as one of us? And then it says that not only does he show up in a baby body, but he comes as one that is born under the law. He doesn't walk onto the pages of history and announce, here I am. Just want you to know that since I'm here, all the rules have changed. Everything is different, and I'm going to show you a new way. Nope. He walks in in the form of a baby, born through a woman, and he announces that I am born under the same conditions that you live under. I'm under the law. I'm accountable to the law. And then the Apostle Paul tells us as he's looking back over his own history, everything that he has been taught as a young boy, and he sees it differently when he says this, now I realize what was going on. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and then it says, with a very specific purpose, because the next word says two, or in order that. In other words, God's purpose for having Christmas, God's purpose for involving himself is to send Jesus, and it was to do what the rules and regulations could not do. It was to do what the judges and the prophets could not do. It was to do what exile and punishment had not been able to do. It was to do what even the sacred texts could not do or accomplished. God was about to do something very personal, and so he had to do something very relational. To do something personal, he had to do something relational. And because of that, another message wouldn't have done the job. Sending another messenger wouldn't have done the job. He wanted to do something personal, so God did what he needed to do to make it relational, and so God needed Christmas in order to spare us from what would come without it. And we look at this and say, well, then why did God need Christmas? Because the verse goes on to say this, to redeem. He needed Christmas to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So we look at this and we recognize God didn't just want to move not simply nations and not simply tribes of people, but to move individuals, individual people into an individual relationship with himself. And so at Christmas, God took the first step of removing all of the obstacles that would keep us from unrestricted fellowship with him. All these barriers, all these boundaries would be removed. This was personal, so God had to come in person. This isn't one of those events where the king of kings could just send another emissary. It wouldn't have been good enough for somebody else to show up and say, I've come with a message from the king. And as you think about it for a minute, this is what we come to. How would we know where we stood with God if God had not come to stand with us? How would we know where we are with him if he hadn't come to be with us? In other words, how would you know where you stood with God if God did not come to stand with you? A message wouldn't get it done. Another messenger wouldn't do it. In fact, a miracle wouldn't get it done. So here's what happened. 
One of the things that we've heard a lot about lately in our culture is demonstrations. How many of you heard about that? In fact, we've, we've even talked about, well, if they limit the number of people we can have in church, then we're just going to have a spiritual demonstration in our church uh, so that we can all come. But we've heard a lot about this. Interesting enough, did you know that God staged a demonstration? We look at this and it says at just the right time, God staged a demonstration. Because we know and God knows that actions speak louder than words on a written page. It had to be a demonstration that would be documented. It had to be a demonstration in history on planet Earth that could be documented in such a way that here we are hundreds and hundreds of years later and that we would still be talking about it and the people would know about it. So today, if you're here today or if you're watching online and you're a skeptic, Maybe this whole season thing has just got you bothered because you just don't believe, or maybe you're not a Christian at all, and you've just looked at this and you thought, man, there's nothing to this, or maybe you have decided, you know, here's the way I'm going to deal with Christ. As I get older and when it's more convenient, then maybe I'll deal with it, or, or maybe this whole thing is just a fairy tale to you. I do not want you to miss this morning the gravity of the history of the story of Christmas. Four thousand years ago, God promised that He would do something through the line of Abraham. Two thousand years later, Jesus was born. And this is what you need to understand. Two thousand years after Jesus was born, we are sitting in a church service on a Sunday morning and we are still talking about it because it's alive and real. So try to imagine, in your life, and I've discovered that the older I get, how much easier this is for me. In your life, how many details have you forgotten? In fact, if it wasn't for pictures that we can look at in the past, we would, we would lose certain things of our own history. In fact, you talk to grandma and grandpa and you're saying, now what year was it you got your first car? And they're going, I don't know. I have a picture of it somewhere. We lose those details if they're not documented and held for us. And so as we get older on all these things, we lose dates, we lose details. Significant things have happened over the history of the last 2,000 years that because they were not documented have been lost to history. And yet think about this. The birth of a Jewish baby in the armpit of the Roman Empire became a household name because the Scripture says, when the set time had come, when the time was perfect, when God knew it would not slip through the cracks of history, He sent His Son into this world, born of a woman, to redeem those under the law so that we might experience adoption to sonship into the family of God. It had to be a demonstration that was documented. And so the Apostle Paul, when he is writing his complicated letter to the Christians who were living in Rome, and I, I want you to know it was not easy uh, to be a Christian living in Rome at that time. In fact, the fact there were Christians living in Rome at all indicated that they understood the fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But hundreds and hundreds of people within just a few years had embraced Jesus as their Savior while they are living under the imperial rule of Nero. And so he writes to these Christians in Rome. And here's what he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates. 
But God demonstrates. In other words, God shows us. He acted it out. He put actions to his feelings of love, and he says, I want to show you how much I love you. Now, some of you have had people in your life that have said to you, I love you. Some of you have had people in your life that have tried to manipulate you by saying to you that they love you. The difference is, is that just because you can say the words, if there is no behavior behind those words to indicate that there is value to them, then we can dismiss it as simply being manipulated. Because if somebody loves you, they'll sacrifice for you. But God demonstrates. He didn't just tell us, even though being a perfect God, it would have been believable for him when he says to us he loves us. We would have believed it because he doesn't lie. But it says he demonstrated his own love for us in this. And the this that he's talking about is those things which the prophets had hinted about for years. It was the thing that had been foretold for years. It was the thing that sacred text had foreshadowed. But this was the thing that in Jesus God demonstrated and documented for the entire world to see. For God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now this is an amazing statement because this statement takes Christmas and makes it personal. And Paul would have understood this as he's, as he's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It would have dawned on him just how personal this was to him because he's writing this and he's going, while I was still sinning, while I was still resisting, while I was still doubting, before I even knew God had sent His Son into the world, while during the time of my worst rebellion, Christ died for me. This, this had to be as overwhelming to Him as I hope it is for us today because he understood what his personal history was. And, and when we read the Scripture, we know the sin list in our own lives. We can list the things which would give God every reason to dismiss us and not love us. And Paul's list of sins would have looked like this. Man, he, he had been on a personal mission to get rid of the church. He had pursued and arrested and sent to prison many Christians. He had participated in the persecution and execution of Christians. An overwhelming pain of Paul's past as he begins to think about this reinforced the power of the words that he is now writing to the Christians living in Rome. And he is telling them, listen, here's what I want you to know, and this is what we need to know this morning. God knew of my passionate hate for him when he died for me. God knew that I would be a one-man wrecking machine when it came to having Christians arrested and stoned to death. God knew that what I was going to do, and while I was still doing it, while it was still in my mind, while I was still sinning, Christ looked at me and died for me anyway. Jesus' death was a demonstration of how much God is for us. That's why Christmas at Christmas, God made it personal. It was personal. This leads me to another question. 
And this is perhaps a question that you have asked yourself in the recesses of your own mind. Maybe you haven't mentioned it out loud because you weren't sure how to deal with it. Perhaps you've been a Christian a long time, and if somebody were to ask you this question, you're not sure how you would answer it, and so you've, you've kind of held back on sharing your testimony. Or perhaps you're not a Christian today, and the reason that you're not a Christian is because you've never been able to answer this question well enough to bring you to, to a place of decision. And, and I want you this morning to do this for me. If, if you would, would you just put aside your smart devices for just a second? Would you just quit checking your Amazon wish list to see if there's anything still left there? For those of you that may be at home today, if you could just put your coffee down and, and whatever distraction, just put it down for a second and listen to me. Because this is the question. Why did Jesus have to die? It's confusing enough that God crammed Himself into a baby body. But why did He have to die? Why did He have to die in such a violent and public demonstration? Why the blood, the gore, the beating, the having His beard pulled out in chunks from His face, the thorns, the nails in His hands and feet, the spear thrust into His side? Why, why all of that? Why couldn't Jesus just have stood and pronounced everybody is forgiven? Why couldn't he just say it? He could have just easily stood on a hillside and said, hey, 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 I need all of your attention, please. Gather around. I've got a great announcement for you. Here's what it is. Listen, everybody. I just want you to know one last thing before I leave this place. You're all forgiven. It's done. I forgive you of all of your sins. Just want to leave you with that last message. You are forgiven. You have eternal life. You're all going to spend eternity with me in heaven. Everybody's forgiven. Spread the good news. I'm going home to dad now. Why didn't he do that? A couple of reasons. First of all, nobody would have believed him if he had said it. Nobody would have believed him. You're saying, well, how do you know that? Because I've got some scriptural examples of it. In Luke chapter 5, verses 18 through 25 is one of the most fascinating accounts for lots of reasons because it's an account of a paralyzed man whose friends lowered him through a neighbor's roof. I have always wondered what that insurance form looked like when that neighbor was trying to get his roof paid for. It, Jesus, Jesus was at my house. They literally took the man's roof apart and lowered this man down. And in verse 20, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, friend, your sins are forgiven, he said. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to think to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus knew what they were thinking. I love that part because I don't know about you, but my mom had a unique way of knowing my thoughts. It was scary. And so how would you like to be an individual who Jesus is there and you aren't even speaking out loud? You're just thinking and Jesus goes, I know what you're thinking. That scares me to death. Frankly, I have some thoughts that I don't want him to know anything about. And Jesus knows their questions and so he goes, I know what you're thinking. And he spells it out for them and then he gives them an answer. He says, why are you thinking all these things in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So this wasn't an authority issue. He had the authority to do it. So he says to the paralyzed man, I tell you, take up your mat and go home. And immediately, that man did not have to be told twice. 
jumps up, grabs his mat, rolls it under, and he walked out the door right through the crowd, rejoicing at what had just taken place. And immediately changed everything. But the people there didn't believe Jesus had the right to ask forgiveness of sin. And if that wasn't enough, then in Luke chapter 7, verses 44 through 49, we know that Jesus had been invited to, to Simon the Pharisee's house for a meal, and while he is there, there's a woman who has a rotten past who shows up and washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair, and it says this, then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. But the other guests that are listening to all of this said among themselves, who is this that he even has the right to say your sins are forgiven? So if he had just stood up and pronounced everybody's sins are forgiven, which he had the authority to do, nobody would have believed him. Because it says right here, both times he did it, it caused a stir, and they were saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't forgive sin. You may be able to look at somebody who wronged you and say to them, I forgive you, because that's within your realm of responsibility. But you can't stand up and say to everybody that their sins are forgiven, and nobody has the right to forgive somebody else's sins against, they, against which they have committed against God. No mere mortal can do that. It's impossible. So if Jesus had simply said, I just want to pronounce that everybody's sins are forgiven, no one would have believed him because they didn't believe him when he did do it. They wouldn't have taken him seriously. In fact, if this is the way that Jesus had wanted to deal with sin, this story would have died in the first century because only a crazy man would claim to be able to forgive people of their sin against other people, and it would never have been documented. But more importantly, and this is the part that I don't want you to miss, there's a reason Jesus had to die. Here's the reason Jesus had to come in a baby body. Here's the reason that God sent His Son into the world to live among us, to grow up as one of us, and to die in such a public and violent and documented way, demonstrating for us His love. Here it is, because God is the author of life. He's the author of life. God is the author of your life. And honestly, we're, we're still trying to figure out this life thing. The smarter and more technological we become, we begin to discover new different things about it. But listen, life is sophisticated and life is complicated. Your cells are smarter than your brain. Your body is doing things that you don't even understand. In fact, for generations and generations preceding us, the bodies were doing things that your forefathers didn't understand then, but we are just learning about now. We didn't understand germs for hundreds and hundreds of years. We're just figuring that part out. But God is the author of life. God is the author of your life. And so listen closely. This is the message of Christmas. When you dishonor the source of life, you dishonor God. 
To dishonor the source of life is an expression of ingratitude deserving of the forfeiture of life itself. In other words, you owe and I owe and we owe God our lives and to disregard God and the life that He has given for us disqualifies us from even living it fully. How many of you know that we live in a culture of ingratitude? Understand that? Okay. As an illustration this morning, I'm going to tell a hypothetical story about a hypothetical family with hypothetical children and grandchildren. It's Christmas morning. And mom and dad and grandma and grandpa have been searching all night for where they hid the gifts because they have forgotten. And after they find them, they spend the rest of the night wrapping those gifts while the kids are sleeping. And just as they finish, the sun begins to peek above the horizon, and the kids instantly wake up earlier than they've ever waken up before. And they come running into the living room, and there is a tree, and gifts are flooding out from under the tree, and those kids are looking at that, but they have no idea how hard mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and friends and aunts and uncles have sacrificed to be able to provide them what is there. And because this hypothetical family is a Christian family, they read the Christmas story before they opened their presents. And then the kids sat down in different places and their gifts were brought to them and surrounding them. And at some point, one of these hypothetical children looks at their brother and starts counting their gifts. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They look to their sister and starts counting their gifts. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then they look at their own pile. You know where I'm going with this? One, two, three, four. Mom! This is not fair! They may have a giant one there in the pile, but there is an inequity there, and they're disappointed with it before they even begin to open their gifts in this hypothetical family. We live with this spirit of ingratitude that is alive and well, and we would love to think that we outgrow it, but we don't because as adults, we hide it better. Well, somebody's been blessed this Christmas. God stepping into Christmas really brings to us to the place where we should get to the point where we wake up every morning and say, God, I thank you for my life. Whatever it is that you're going to ask of me today, it's a yes. Before you even ask, it's a yes because I owe you everything. How in the world could I ever say no to God who gave me life? How in the world could I resist the God who gave me life? How in the world could I resist the will of God who gave me the opportunity to live and yet we do it every single day to God? You did not choose your birth date, and the chances are you will not choose the date that you will leave this planet. But somehow, between these miraculous bookends, we have been given life that we shake our fist at God and say, I'm going to do what I am going to do the way I want to do it whenever I want to do it, and you can't make me do anything. 
And we deserve to lose the greatest gift God ever gave us, the gift of life. We owe a debt to the giver of life that we cannot pay. We owe him our lives because he's the author of your life. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The last part means this, Christ died in your place. We deserve to give up the thing that is most valuable to us because we have been disrespectful of the giver of life. And after the resurrection, Jesus sends his disciples into Jerusalem and he told them to stay there until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and empowers you to take the good news to the world. And after that it happened, sometimes later, these, these disciples step into the very streets where Jesus had been dragged and, and where he had been uh, shown and, and pulled out of the city and dragged and crucified. And they're in the presence of the very people who had done this to Jesus, those who had arrested him and crucified him. They stand there face to face, and here's Peter and Andrew and James and John, and as they are in those very streets looking at the very people that arrested and crucified Jesus, it tells us what they told them in Acts 3.14. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released unto you. When Jesus was on trial, Pilate offered to give Jesus back and to spare his life, and Instead, to release somebody who was much more corrupt, and they chose to allow a murderer in Barabbas to be freed over Jesus. They chose a man who took life over a man who could give life. And they were stunned. And then there's this next line in this verse that grabs you as these men were staring into the eyeballs of the men and women who had arrested Jesus, and they said this in verse 15, you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. And the implication is this. God laid down his life for you so that you could have life. Because we know in John 10, 18, it says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down to you. That God sent his son into the world in a baby body to grow up like us and among us so that he could give what we could not give he could give us a gift that we could not give ourselves and pay a massive debt that we owed. We owe our lives to the author of life. And so Jesus' death demonstrated the magnitude of our ingratitude, the severity of our offense, the disregard that we have for the author of life. We abused the supplier. We, lose, we deserve to lose the supply. So Jesus' death demonstrated the magnitude of our ingratitude, and Jesus' death demonstrated the magnitude of his love for you. You cannot demonstrate love without sacrifice. You cannot demonstrate great love without great sacrifice. Because here's what we know today. Love must be shown to be known. You can't have somebody love you if they're not willing to sacrifice for you. So how does God do this to, to a world that He claims to love? How does God make known to us His image? How does God demonstrate at a personal level His love for you? He gives you the greatest sacrifice that could ever be given. Because he knows that you know you never really know how much somebody loves you until you're willing to see how much they're sacrificed for you.
And in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, would you please come to the keyboard? You see, God needed Christmas. God needed Christmas to demonstrate and document His love for us as a rebel race. Otherwise, how would we have ever known? So when the time set had fully come, in this moment of time when everybody had given up hope, when nobody was looking for it, Interesting enough, when the Roman Empire had laid the groundwork for the message to be distributed, when a time when the temple system had become so corrupted that it was hard to even take it seriously and people were thinking, if this is what God's about, I don't want anything to do with it, when the time had fully come, a Jewish carpenter discovers that his fiancée is pregnant and he's trying to figure out in his mind, what in the world am I going to do about this? What do I do with her? Do I shame her? Do I protect her? Do I lie about her? Do I marry her? Do I tell my family what's going on? Do I tell her parents what's going on? What do I do with her? And after asking those questions, the Scripture says, the angel of the Lord spoke to a bewildered young man, and he said, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, the set time has fully come. I've set the stage for this. And she will give birth to a son and you were to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, which was Isaiah. And then he goes on to quote the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means this is what makes it so personal for God and for you. This is why God, perfect God, stepped into a messy Christmas. God with me. Why a perfect God in a messy Christmas? Because he wanted to know that he was with me. And he is with you. So God staged a demonstration and documented it so that the world would know. And 2,000 years later, we are still talking about it today because God knew that we needed to see it to believe it. It wasn't enough to say it. He had to send his son to pay the price for our sins so that once we understood and embraced the story, none of us that are sitting here today or none of us that are listening would ever, ever, ever be able to say again that we could doubt God's love for us. Couldn't do it. He had to be with us so that we would know that he is for us. We needed a demonstration. That's why God needed Christmas. Would you stand with me, please? I hope today that there was an aspect of this that began to answer some questions. For those of you that may be doubting, for those of you that have just wondered, what, why Christmas? Why did God do this? 
because he wanted to demonstrate to you how much he loves you. And he wanted documented so the world would never forget. And he knew that this moment in time right now was going to come where you would have an opportunity to act on a perfect God stepping into your messy life to bring you Christ so that your messy life could be cleaned up because of what Jesus did. So would you close your eyes for just a moment? Nobody looking around. I'm simply going to ask this question. If you feel God knocking on the door of your heart today and you know that He is wanting to be let in and you're willing to invite Him into your life today, regardless of what may be going on in your life, Paul was going through all of these things and said, He knew what I was doing and He still loved me even then. God knows what's going on in your life right now, but He still loves you even now. If you today are willing to let Jesus Christ become your forgiver, your Lord, your Savior, would you, just wherever you are, would you just lift up a hand? I'm simply going to say, I agree with you. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. As I'm looking around, yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Are there others this morning? As I'm looking around, is the Lord knocking on the door of your heart? This message is for you. This is why Christmas exists. Taking one more look around, is there anybody else say, yes, today's my day? I don't care how long you've attended church. Is today your day? Then, Heavenly Father, I come on behalf of those three today that said that this is a divine appointment, this moment right here. The time for them has fully come, and they recognize in this moment of your great love demonstrated and documented by a great sacrifice that changes their lives today, 2,000 years after Jesus was born. You still have the power to change lives today. And we receive it. Your love, your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy, we get it all when we receive Jesus. And so, Lord, as you are writing new names down today in the Lamb's Book of Life, we rejoice with you that a perfect God stepped into the mess of our lives and brought us Christmas because God needed Christmas just like we did. And so, Father, I pray today that you would transform these lives, that from this moment forward they will walk in such a way that will bring honor to you as they learn to love you and respond to your love day by day. And we are grateful for the forgiveness that you are giving. In Jesus' name, amen.